Welcome to Constructive Curiosity, a podcast that promotes personal growth, authenticity, and helping others through inspirational messages, techniques for success, and interviews with extraordinary people. Follow and subscribe on YouTube and Instagram at Constructive Curiosity or listen on your preferred podcast platform. The journey begins now. Hello, and thank you for joining me today on Constructive Curiosity. I have some amazing guests today who've authored a book. They're a married couple, and it's going to be really excited to hear their story, their impacts, and the different things they've learned over the years in leadership, especially. But we're joined by both Dr. Clelands. We have Simon and Marissa. How are you guys doing today? Oh, thank you very much, Casey, for inviting us. Great. Thank you so much. So we're going to get to your book here in a little bit, but like I kind of gave you a warning beforehand, let's learn a little bit about how you two got together and what brought you to, to where you are. Um, I'm going to go ahead and get started, Morris, and then you can uh, follow up if you'd like. Uh, we met in college, believe it or not. Uh, we were going to the same uh, university, George Mason University, and uh, it just so happened that, happened that our uh, paths crossed. and. Uh, the moment I saw Marissa, I knew I was going to marry her. So uh, we dated. Uh, we actually got married at the university's uh, uh, chapel. And uh, we've been together, I would say, for um, 30 years now or more, um, uh, making 23 years of uh, 24 years this year of marriage. But uh, we've been longer together than that. So um, it's been a wonderful journey, uh, you know, in our careers. Uh, obviously have taken different paths. Um, I've been a little bit more on the consulting track and then, um, uh, you know, stumbled into uh, academia. Uh, and Marissa was actually uh, an educator for quite some time. And then she uh, pursued as well uh, her academic career and then uh, more of a nonprofit work um, and the university work as well. So, uh, but throughout this entire journey, um, we have uh, kind of learned, uh, very, very valuable lessons related to leadership. And we've distilled all these lessons in this uh, book about what we consider to be, um, to us, the most uh, transformative, if you wish, uh, leadership style, which is uh, this uh, uh, relatable leadership. And now uh, I'd just like Marissa also talk a little bit about um, how we met in her journey too. <laughs> Oh, no, that, that's the way we met in college. <laughs> Short, sweet, to the point, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's been good. <laughs> so a little background on how I actually got you guys on the show. So Simon was the hardest professor I had during my master's program. I'll, I'll go ahead and just put that out there. Very challenging classes, but they were worth it. I actually learned something. Yeah, you had to put in a lot of work. Only professor that made us do video cast rather than just the normal discussions. But you know what? That was great, especially for the timing. Because that was literally right before COVID hit. So a lot of us have not ever had to deal with remote work being on video. So just to put that out there, thank you for that experience. I was much more prepared than a lot of my peers were. Because I've been doing a lot more video stuff than most people had at that point. So great professor to have. Absolutely. Casey was, uh, you know, one of my top students and I really en enjoyed you having in the class because you would always have wonderful uh, stories and lessons to share 
and to incorporate them into the various discussions we had. So it, it, it's been a wonderful experience having you in, in my life because we'll often communicate and um, you know talk about our uh, career progressions. And I love to keep in touch with all my students um, and, and to hear um, you know what they've learned and how they've matured and uh, uh, succeeded in their career. So it's it's great uh, that um, I had you as a student. I've enjoyed our uh, classes and journey at Georgetown. Um, this particular book does incorporate, as uh, as you know, um, lessons from uh, my experiences at Georgetown and, and some of the lectures and and the courses I've taught there. Um, and so for your listeners, anybody that's uh, interested in kind of maybe dipping their toes a little bit into what is uh, what is it like to be at uh, Georgetown? You could uh, kind of, you know, read a little bit about some of that um, content that I've introduced in my courses, especially on complexity theory and, and how uh, good leaders are aware of how complexity plays a role in um, shaping them to be um, ever more and better individuals um, and more relatable individuals to their um, subordinates. So. Uh, but thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to um, to come and, and share those lessons on this podcast. And actually, one of the assignments came up a couple of weeks ago. My daughter's in fifth grade, and she was working on a writing assignment. She says, it's two pages. I'm like, well, I'd write a 40-page paper. So, <laughs> there we go. You know, I also, I like to embellish. So it wasn't quite the requirement. It wasn't 40, but that's what it ended up being. So. <laughs> it's... it's uh, You've done some great papers, and you know we've we've uh, sometimes it's it's difficult to um, to share uh, what you have in your background in just one or two pages. Uh, although they say that it's difficult to um, to write shorter papers than longer ones sometimes because you have to <laughs> synthesize so much of that awareness and that knowledge. But uh, certainly, forty pages. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, there are some assignments in there that require you to. Uh, definitely introduced quite a bit um, on some of the lessons we learned in this class. So, <laughs> what, what class was it? Engine complexity. Oh, <laughs> which was which was funny because I took that. I had an interesting life circumstance where I had to actually leave Georgetown for a semester, and when I came back, that was the only class that was available. I was like, oh, okay, it was my second class after the intro to the program. It's <laughs> like holy crap, this is gonna be hard. It was the hardest class I had the entire time. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, when COVID hit, um, I had the opportunity to overhear um, Simon do a lecture for it, his ethical leadership class. And that's part of the mm -hmm. book when we were doing the whole book. And I got to read about, you know, like the ethics um, dilemmas and everything like that. And so I was just wondering if it was that class. I've never heard him lecture for complexity. So now I took that one as well. You were my professor for that one as well, if I remember ethical leadership, which is a great class. Great class. Absolutely loved it. Complexity, um, there is a whole chapter in the book about this, and uh, there's uh, quite a bit of literature um, out there, and as, as you're familiar with it and resonated um, with many of the lessons that you shared. Um, it's, a, it's, it's what really impacts us being better leaders and better project managers. If we aren't aware of the various types of complexity systems that exist and how they interact with each other and uh, the various biases that we bring into the table. So I'm sure we're going to get into these in the conversation here, but we carry that baggage with us as leaders. And it is needed for us to recognize this baggage. It's necessary for us to 
um, explicate it and be aware of it and you know really jot it down even and, and um, find out what is our starting line where did we come from get to know ourselves better in order to um, embrace uh, what our qualities are and maybe some of the gaps that we have in order for us to uh, be able to expand these as, as uh, on our quest to becoming better leaders and then move forward into this complex world and navigate these different types of factors that impact us as, as you uh, learn in this class, particularly, uh, and, you know, sometimes uh, our humanness is the one that really prevents us the most from, from being better leaders or, or project managers. And so <clears throat> being aware of the bias, biases that we carry of our internal, uh, um, if you wish, uh, barriers that prevent us from um, who to become who we who we really need to be in order to relate to others better. So uh, it's it's just a in the ethical leadership class that, that Marissa mentioned uh, and you took as well. Um, it's a very nice round um, rounded framework to introduce to uh, how not only to be a great project manager but how to be a more uh, of a, an, an ethical one. Doing different types of situations. <laughs> so let's just jump into the book. We keep hitting at us. Let's up, walk around the subject and get into it. There is no box. Fantastic read. And I've read a lot of leadership books, listened to a lot of books when I'm exercising, and it's different. I'll go ahead and just put that out there. It's different than what I've normally heard for a leadership book because it has two different sides to the story. One of the issues I see, and this is just from my perspective, it's an opinion, so take it for what it is. You get too much into one author, and at times that can be distracting. You lose the quality of the content because you get too much of the author. And I felt like the way you guys had a good back and forth, it'd be from the different perspectives, different life journeys. It was multiple angles. It was multiple perspectives. And you were able to really see holistically the message that you were trying to send. So fantastic job on the writing. Thanks. Um, when Simon was doing his one of his leadership I, I think it was his master's it might have been his second doctorate but um i had a chance to like read some of his papers and i was like these papers and concepts and things that you're pulling together really need to be in a book and i work in publishing and so like immediately i'm always looking for like hey like who wants to write a book and like how can i help you get it published and so you know i was looking i was reading his papers and he was doing a, a bunch of research and i'm sure that um you saw it in the book there's we use a lot of outside sources because a lot of times like somebody will have the experience from one company or one corporation and they'll put the book out and I love it. Like I represent authors that have books published with like Wiley and other um, business book authors that are popular, but it's from their personal experience. And I thought that what Simon did was very unique because he was taking a bunch of experiences and seeing like this doesn't always work. If well, for example, if you're in the military or, you know, servant leadership doesn't work when you're in the middle of a crisis and you need that authoritative, like this is how we should just get it done. And this person has the most experience because they've dealt with it five or six or a hundred times before. And so that's when like the relatable thing kind of came up where everybody's so locked on. Oh, we have to all be trans, you know, transformational leaders or or transactional or authoritative or charismatic or, you know, and. Some situations I found when I was working with like some of the nonprofit leaders, like the, uh, what is what I'm thinking, not extroverted, but the introverted leaders were actually the more calming ones that could reach the community where their audience would listen to them because they fit that personality type. And he was 
like cultivating this in all his papers and his research and doing like um survey monkey and trying to get like results and in, in studies and i was like we have to put this in a book i'm like give me all your notes i'm like let's let's get this out there because it's something that anybody can pick up and and really i feel like um when i was working with our agent on it the book teaches you how to be a better person and i think most leaders want people to be better people around them like leaders don't want to work with a bunch of non nice people non-kind non-productive and i think what what simon's research that hit on me when i was like we have to put this into a book is that yeah um leaders do cultivate other leaders and leaders cultivate people who they want to work with and that's how you get a really great team and and forward momentum and but it's being able to recognize the situation and like what what situation calls for which type of leadership it's not like we all have to be this type of leader which is what i found a lot of books when i was trying to do research on it is like explaining like you need these competencies but you you need these competencies for certain situations so so that's i just love that was my origin story about how i wanted simon to write this book <laughs> and how i jumped on board yeah no that's awesome i mean that's exactly a great point you know people don't realize i should put this in a book until someone brings it to light you should put this in a book this is really important and it's a message like you said that can captivate an audience it can provide perspective I mean, yeah leadership is like we've all probably read a million leadership books at this point like they're they're just out there and like you said they all pick a path you're supposed to take well this is the best style this is the best style and you guys hit the nail on the head there is no best style it is to be able to adapt them together and the relatable side of that is being able to know when to be this type of leader, when to be that type of leader, and how to show that with your different audiences. So, Simon, when did you first come up with the relatable leader concept? That's a good question, Casey. I, we I had a conversation with Marisa about the various types of leadership styles in the very beginning, and uh, it kind of emerged as we started to focus on uh, the five aspects that we talk about um, in our book that really bring relatable leadership uh, together in terms of competencies. Um, they kind of emerged from what we were reading and what we were conversing and what we were reflecting on. Um, and at that point, we were uh, thinking through what exactly would be the best approach to identify these um, uh, this type of leadership competency that encompasses all these uh, different factors. And I think relatability um, emerged as a conversation as, as to uh, what has really driven us to be more accepted by others, to be to, for us to be more accepting of, of other people's opinions. And, um, you know, I quite often make sure that in my classes, there's this kind of civility and, uh, you know, we, we look to understand each other's differences and embrace them and accept them um, and work with them through corporate cooperation to, um, uh, whether if students are completing any work or if as a project manager working through accomplishing certain types of deliverables under certain types of uh, resource constraints or time constraints. Um, and so I think relatable, the term relatable emerged as, as a, from that conversation and reflection to encompass these uh, five uh, uh, processes, if you wish, that we uh, we talk about in our book. And I, this, I, this is how um, I have it in my mind it's it's been several years now um that we've um uh, crystallized this into that book i think that book was published almost two years ago <laughs> but I, mean, I think marissa might have a better recollection of how we came up with that 
Oh, um, well, I remember we were brainstorming terms, like we were just looking at words. And when we started putting together that chart, um, Simon had written a paper where he put together a, a chart of all these leadership styles. And I remember when we started working on the, the communication aspect and we were talking about how you can't teach empathy because um, I, don't, I don't know how much you, you know about Simon from your classes, but he's very empathetic. <laughs> and he, I remember him saying like when he worked on a team with some uh, oh, it was like this team at night. They're all virtual. We were like, he was downstairs on the sofa with like his computer, like two or three computers up and they were trying to do this software release. And I remember he, he was like feeling, not like feeling bad, but he was feeling bad for like one guy that had a kid, another guy had like a wife that was sick or something. And, and he was feeling bad for everybody. But as a leader, you can't just give into that. And so when you're empathetic, it puts you in that really uh, tough situation. And so you can teach compassion. And so even if you can't teach empathy, you can teach compassion where you can, you can't like put yourself in that other person's shoes, but you can understand their situation and try to see how you can alleviate it without having to pick one over the other. The, you know, the, the guy with the sick son versus the guy with the sick wife trying to stay up till 3 a.m. to make sure that the testing works so that the software works so that in the morning that people come in. And, and so when we started doing the compassionate communication section, we were still brainstorming like the type of leadership. And then that chart came up and we're like, well, what does this mean? And the whole thing about communication was, are they able to understand us of what we're trying to say? Are we able to understand them? What, what word ties all that together. And it's like, hey, can you relate to me? You can't relate to me if you don't have that experience. If I don't have a broken leg, I can't relate to you. But I can still, so I can't have empathy. I'm not like, oh, it hurts, a visceral reaction. But I can have compassion, like, hey, maybe you can't go up five flights of stairs. And and I think we were just brainstorming words that kind of encapsulated that feeling and that moment that we wanted. And that's when we were like, relatable. Can you relate to it? No, well, how do you get relatable? You get more experiences. And they don't have to be big, they can be small experiences. Like we watched a documentary about some refugees and I was like, people really live like that? And and that's how you get more relatable to situations. So I think that's probably the origin story of that word is we were brainstorming them as we were putting together the table and working on that compassionate communication chapter. Yeah, because everyone's had a somebody, whether you're still a child and you have a teacher that you can't quite connect with, or coach or you know as an adult everybody's had a boss that you just don't see eye to eye with and they, they you're so far separated it can really hurt the organization if it gets to a certain point i know i've had a couple bosses where that was the case they were very standoffish and would not try to see the rest of the team knows their way or the highway and that doesn't bring a very good organization that causes a lot of turmoil causes a lot of undue stress and you can't reach your maximum potential without being able to understand who your players are what they can bring to the table, and what's going to help them learn, what's going to help them get better. Because at the end of the day, it's not about the leader, and you guys talk about it, so it's not about the leader. It's about how to make the team better to accomplish what you're working on. So if you don't have that in mind, you know, saying I'm the leader and thumping your chest is getting you absolutely nowhere. You picked up really good points from this book, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, and we've discuss with Marissa whether there will be a second edition of that book or or maybe we'll we'll do part two uh, in some different um, areas that we wanted to expand further. But um, 
You know, I, I think you've exactly zeroed in on that and, and relating it to your own personal experience in situations where you have difficult personalities that you need to work with. Um, it's becoming more aware uh, of where, what is that person's starting line? And maybe sometimes we have bad bosses because um, they struggle with loss of control or maybe personal issues in their lives. And um, if we kind of demonstrate that compassionate communication um, and we get a little bit more agile regarding their cultural upbringing, upbringing um, sometimes what you, as you're finding out in this virtual world now in, in many organizations, people are working with people from other countries. Um, and so that um, cultural aspect comes into play. Um, uh, or people that are working here, but were raised in, um, under different cult cultural um, uh, traits and, and uh, experiences that uh, unknowingly they're actually bringing forth or have the expectations of others recognizing these and acting in certain ways. Um, in my past, I've come from a culture where uh, there is a, a, a big recognition for the leader, for, for a person who is actually uh, assuming that responsibility. And, and in the very beginning of my career, there was the expectation that these individuals would know the best for the team. And so there was this kind of a default of power to them with the expectation that they will care for us. You know, they got our backs and they'll follow up on what uh, we need in order to do our work. Uh, but fairly quickly as we mature in the organization and, and going through different organizations, uh, either project management methodologies, life cycles, or individuals with different experiences in different industries, uh, you know, we find out, at least in my experience, that uh, that's not the case. A lot of people do not um, acquire these leadership traits, even though we believe that, that leadership can be taught. And so instead, they kind of uh, fall into that whole uh, idea of being leaders or being managers or acting out as leaders in situations where they were not prepared for. Um, and so they default back to what their starting lines were, uh, subconsciously uh, they follow up on their own uh, own cultural upbringing subconsciously um, and and there's this whole blind expectation that other people would really um, understand that uh, and and assume that would act in certain ways and that doesn't happen and then these conflicts and, and this complexity creates these conflicts in between uh, the people in the organization and um, fairly uh, often the compassionate communication piece is kind of left out uh, and instead, people just uh, uh, fall into their uh, fight or flight mindset where uh, I had a, an experience, not personally, but somebody retold me that story where these individuals were very adversarial in an organization and there was almost going to be a, a fight between them. So the leader put them aside and said, whoever throws the first punch is out of here. <laughs> so <laughs> it happens. So, I mean, how do you mitigate that, you know? Uh, where, how do you let this escalate to a point where um, uh, you as a leader really are so blinded uh, following whatever uh, expectations you have to complete certain work that you don't know what's happening in terms of your uh, team or the people that are working for you or with you? So this is what we're trying to bring in with this book is, um, you know, in one of the chapters we talk about the leadership uh, being a lifestyle, right? Um, it's important for anybody to understand that uh, uh, if they have the, the perception that they're good, uh, they could be good leaders, that's that's a prerequisite. You have to have that idea inside you that you want to be a leader. And you have to follow up on that. Obviously, you have to uh, read up on this and, and study some of the styles out there. 
maybe start with our book and, and just kind of uh, see where the starting lines are and understand what you know and, and what you need to do in order to fill up some of the gaps. Um, but also understand that you are going to be acting as a mentor to the people that are working with you. Uh, you are going to have to build trust with them. Um, you're going to have to understand their situations uh, and um, understand that leadership doesn't start at work. It starts everywhere in your in your family, at home, with your spouse, with your partner, with your community. Um, so even if you're not in a position to be a leader in your organization, uh, you are in a position to be a leader in your community or at home. And people are going to look up to you uh, and they're going to follow you. They're going to, um, um, you know, use you as a mentor. They'll, they'll listen to what you say. They'll sometimes mimic you. Um, if you are successful, they'll try to uh, um, pretend that, that they do, do the same things. And sometimes that won't work out for them. Um, so, but regardless of that, um, you are a leader and, and you have to embrace that that uh, understanding that you are a leader everywhere. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's not a, a nine to five job. <laughs> it's a 24 hour job. It, consider it as a job and i'm sure casey you probably um uh, came across some of that in your experience uh, in the military as well. so i want to go back to the cultural thing real quick Melissa, i see you're about to talk and i hope you're we're on the same wavelength here so one of my favorite parts of the book was where you went into the south florida story and you talked about the cultural differences that you had going in and the expectations the students had of you and how you guys had to connect so Obviously, say whatever else you were being ready to say, but I'd love to go into that topic. Oh, from when I was a high school teacher? Yeah, that was really interesting because I started in Fairfax County um, in their school system where it's very diverse. Um, the school that I was working in was typically a one-parent working professional with a higher education degree and then a stay-at-home parent. And it was probably equal moms versus dads but i could make one phone call and be like hey i noticed like your child was tired today they'd show up at the school and be like oh yeah last night we had you know a very late soccer game or something and they were collecting homework i can just with like one email they would make sure that the students homework was done it was like so much familial support and then i came down to southwest florida and i had parents hang up on me like oh i already did high school it's their turn click and i was very shocked by that and it was the first time that i was really aware as a teacher that not everyone did have starting lines, even though, you know, Simon, for the last 30 years of us being together, pointed out to me like, oh, this person, you know, made it to through college without a car and had three jobs. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like it just kind of just sailed over my head until I actually started looking at it and being like, hey, yeah, um, that's true. So when I came down, it was a huge cultural shock, but it also made me more aware. And I think even now, like some of my friends that I speak with who knew me back in Virginia are like, you're a much nicer person. You're so much more <laughs> kind and not just like nicer kind, but just like more considerate about things where before I'd be, you know, I, I might be a little bit more judgy about it. And now it's like things, I, I have a better understanding of like where they're coming from because of the experience of teaching in Southwest Florida. Um, but I was going to touch on before Simon, I, ha I have this really cool example when he mentioned about, you know, starting lines and you have to want to be a leader. And one of my friends recently, this is just recent. So if we ever did like another book of like um, just stories or anecdotes, this would definitely get in it. 
um, she told her little girl to uh, clean up her room and she's like, I don't want to. And she's like, so you're just going to let it be a mess. And she used her phrase. She's like, you're the CEO of your life. So if you want to have a neat room, you have to. And she was like, okay, yes. And then she went and made like a whole checklist of everything, like of how to clean her room. And she's like, this is the process I'm going to use to clean my room. <laughs> and I was like, that's perfect. You told her she was her own CEO. And I'm, most of um, the people that I know who reached out to me, who've read the book mentioned like taking control of their own life just by that one phrase is what really they connected with. Um, some of them have their own businesses, small businesses, entrepreneurial stuff. Some of them are teachers. And so a lot of like the, the corporate leadership stuff, they can still pull from, but it's that taking control and ownership of their own life that they really connect with. And that's, you know, the really, I think the first piece of learning that like, it's a privilege to be alive and be here and to be able to set your course for what you want to do. And not everyone has to be that leader of that fortune, you know, 100 company or something like they can still be leaders in their community. And that's, or, and the child was the perfect example, the mom with the child. It's like you, whether you want to be a leader or not, if you're a parent, you're by default a leader because they're following your example. So that's what I was going to touch on about when Simon was mentioning about having the leadership be a choice sometimes it's it, we say it's a choice but sometimes it's really not a choice if you're going to be a it's a choice to be a good leader okay. yeah no that's 100 true i got actually i didn't think about trying it with my kids that probably makes sense so i'm going to try but that is the, the ceo of your own life was one of my favorite parts that you guys brought up and then near the really beginning of the book i'm probably going to mess up the direct quote here but you get to live life you don't have to live life that really resonated from the very beginning of the book. I was like, okay, this is already off to a great start. Because it's not just this is what a leader does, you know, George S. Patton's version of leadership or whatever other general or president you want to go into. It has a very personal touch. That's what a lot of people don't understand, that leadership is a personal touch. And there's, like you guys have talked about, we talked a little bit earlier, there's not one right answer. There's multiple ways to do it. And authenticity is something that I go on and on about on the podcast so the listeners probably stop talking about it at some point. That's one of the key tenets of the organization is authenticity. People don't understand that if you're not yourself as a leader, you can't be successful. You can put on whatever mask you want to, but the best boss I ever had, he actually replaced me. He took, I was in his job temporarily for like six months, and then he finally got there and he took over. And he said, yep, this is your organization. I understand that. I'm going to respect what you've done to it. And I want you to be yourself from day one. Don't try to be anybody else, but be who you're going to be from this point on. And that was great. And that's advice I've taken to use forever. If you're the person who has different idiosyncrasies, you have different things that you like to do, you know, whatever you're, whoever you actually are, live in that from the beginning because that's what people can expect. From you. Don't try to be a superhero because it won't work. Um, I, I think that's a, that's a great point. Uh, you know, being authentic, that's that's really, really, uh, we hear that message quite a, a bit uh, as of late um, in terms of uh, being open and honest, but being authentic is um, the most successful way to um, uh, show to the others, uh, your employees and people that you're working with, um, who you really are, and then stick to that. Because I, I've had issues in the past where I would see a, a, an individual under one light the way they uh, carry themselves, the way they communicate, the expectations. Um, and then they would just broadcast some completely different message by acting in a certain way, which is 
in direct conflict with what um, they initially projected, which kind of leaves somebody to uh, really wonder um, who they really are. And if they're not being authentic in this case, um, they lose my particular respect in terms of uh, uh, trust as to whether they will really be uh, who they are in the future. Would they really have my back if I'm delivering um, my work under certain conditions or if I if I need assistance or if I've, I'm struggling with something? Uh, I may not actually see the individual that I expect to see. Um, and so then it's just like uh, programming. If you carry this entire load of, of, of code, trying to come up with new code all the time as to how do you deal with this complexity with this individual and try to guess their uh, their style or how they will behave or their behavior on a certain day when it's not consistent. Um, it becomes very, very difficult to work in an organization like this. People will be actually more exhausted uh, after an eight-hour day than, um, you know, if, if they're consistently meeting the authenticity of that individual. Um, and so um, I think you hit on, on this uh, quite rightly that um, being authentic is, is very, very important um, and sticking to that message as opposed to uh, changing and um, you know, acting differently. So, so I know you both have good perspective. Jeez, Pete, I keep cutting you off, Marissa. I am sorry. Go ahead. No, that's okay. I just <laughs> wanted to jump in on that too about what Simon said because for I think a lot of people uh, don't realize that being authentic doesn't always necessarily mean letting go of your own personal control. Like the more experiences you have, and as you cultivate that relatability, your authenticity will make subtle shifts so that you're not having to struggle to fit into certain situations. Like I remember the first time, and it doesn't have to be big like this, but the first time you travel like to another country and you start seeing how you act versus how other people act, you can pick out like who is American, who is, you know, from, from there, who's a local, even in the States when we travel from like Virginia to Florida, like you mentioned about the school and stuff. But the way that we start integrating these experiences into how we behave is part of our authenticity then because it's a little piece that we pick up and we start acting like that. And so I think one of the great benefits that Simon came up with in the book about cultivating that relatability is it helps you stay authentic by using these experiences to continue to become more relatable where you don't have to be like, okay, I'm in this situation now, I have to act this way. And then you have to pretend and then, okay, I'm in this situation, I have to act this way because you've already gathered all those experiences to help you authentically move into the different scenarios that you may or may not be familiar with or have heard about or read about in a book. So that's, I just want to jump in and say that. Perfect. So this question I'm going to directly give to Marissa first, that way I don't actually step up on the next one. But so having worked as an educator and, you know, been a leader in various different positions, seeing that authenticity start to emerge from the students or those that work with you, is that one of the most rewarding things that you can see? And when do you first see that personality, especially the students? I've not had to work with anybody but adults. I was in adult education for a while. But for younger students, when is the time you see their authentic personality first? And how did you cultivate that? Ooh, that's a tough one. I love working with adult students too. So for, <laughs> I think one, well, that's a really tough one because like typically like once you've been in a school like I was in the high school for a while I was the cheer coach I worked with the band and the dancers and everything so you get like a reputation of what type of teacher you are so then I ended up having you know parents request that their 
student or their son's daughter or younger sibling get into my classroom. And there was like a preconceived notion about it. But the very first year, um, I could tell that people were, you know, they would look at me and be like, is this English? Because uh, obviously I'm Asian. And I'm like, yeah. yes, it's English. Like, come on in, I'm going to teach you. And that's, that's when you know you see they have their guard up a little or they're they're judging you or what kind of teacher you're going to be how you're going to behave and i think the most rewarding part was when they finally realized and it came at different points for different students but again because i was part of the extracurriculars like it was easier to get to know me um they would come hang out in my classroom during lunches and after school and get ready for practice and stuff but it's when they see that they don't have to lie about why they didn't get something done or like oh man the bus dropped off super late i just didn't do it can i do it now or they'll come in during lunch and be like i forgot my homework for next period can i just do it here and it's like then you know that they're just they're comfortable being around you they're comfortable asking for your help and they know that they need to do certain things and they want to take responsibility for it but they're like rushing and be like can i use your computer uh, you know next period i've got it and i'm like sure and so we you know we have the student computers and they would be hopping on doing their homework during lunch eating pizza you know trying to and and that's when it's like yeah they know they can come to me for assistance but they're not expecting me to do it for them and they're taking ownership of it. So they've figured out where they can go for those resources. And they also want to do it because they could just go to their next period without having their homework done and make up some lie. But but knowing that they didn't have to do that around me meant that they knew I was being myself around them so they could be themselves around me. Did that answer the question? <laughs> it did. And I got to compliment you. You've, you've actually gathered one of the things that a lot of leaders struggle with. And as being a military guy, I saw that a lot is, well, this is the standard. You don't meet the standard. You, you don't get to do this. If you're late for physical training. You're in trouble. And I got people would wonder why I didn't get on soldiers the first few times they did that. And it's kind of what we talk about. I want them to trust me. Everybody makes mistakes. We're human. Life happens. I mean, you had something go on the night before. You don't know what was going on with their family, whether it's a child or an adult. Something traumatic could have happened. They could have just had other priorities. They literally could have just forgot my daughter. Forgot her folder the other day for school. Okay, we had to take it to her. It happens. And the fact that you have the awareness to understand that you want them to be able to come to you and to trust you, that's a fantastic leadership quality that people struggle to develop because they don't see anything outside of themselves. Or, you know, as a military, corporations, different things like that, this is the rules, this is our values. You step outside of here, you're in trouble. And that's not all, it, it does need to be that way sometimes. I'm not saying you can forgive every single infraction, but you also got to remember, how would you want to be treated in that situation? What would you want somebody to do for you? And is it a trend? That's always the thing too, I used to tell. I had one guy who was habitually late, and he'd always ask, well, well you're not mean to the other guy. Well, this is his first time being late. You're late every other time. There's a trend, there's a problem. So let's address it, but yeah. That's impressive. It really is impressive. Most people don't get to that point. So that's very impressive. I learned that from Simon. That's one thing about empathy. Like it is a very, um, it can be considered a weakness in leaders if you are too empathetic and you have too large of a team. But um, yeah, just watching Simon work with his teams as a project manager because he gets stuck. And I think this is in the book, but I always share this with my friends who own businesses and stuff. I'm like, I watched him get stuck with a team where he wasn't their manager he had no authority over them they were all from different and i don't know what you call that but they were all from different areas yep. um and they had to all be on testing and stuff and he just had to like soak it in and like you said like 
understand like that maybe if it's a habit versus like a, a way that they behave every time and the fact that and I remember reading a book about that a general wrote that we had met that came down here to give a speech and he was like you know in training you can be as hard as you want on them as long as they know that you're just trying to instill specific values so that they understand that when it does matter when you know it is a life or death situation or somebody is counting on you to be there in that second that they need you that you are not two minutes late then and th those types of little lessons and in, in, in like seeing the speeches and watching Simon work with like teams that he's actually dealing with it in the real world kind of combined it all until I actually did enter the classroom. And I think that's where that came from. Otherwise, I was just before I even took my master's, you know, I wasn't aware. I was very much in my own self of, I'm going to teach you. I have all this knowledge and I'm going to teach you. <laughs> you know, like we're going to read this book and talk about and, and then it didn't become like that at all. And it was like, I stopped saying I teach, you know, English because I heard Simon say, oh, I teach students. I teach adult learners. He didn't say, I teach ethical leadership. I teach project management. And it's like, yeah, that's true. Like you're teaching humans. You're not teaching a subject. You're teaching humans about the subject. And it wasn't until I heard him say that, that I actually, you know, pulled that into myself. So matrix organizations, Simon, aren't those fun to try to manage? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, sometimes it's actually a, a, a good thing because they will bring in um, structure and some individuals work better in structure, right? Um, and then sometimes uh, you would have a situation where, um, you know, a different generation. I mean, that's one one thing that um, today's leaders need to recognize is the fact that we work with different types of uh, generations. We may have baby boomers. We may have Generation X, Y, Z, uh, all working under the same umbrella in the same unit, the same uh, functional department. And, uh, and Marissa was just talking about this. We had situations where uh, we had to inadvertently manage these different types of generations to accomplish a common goal. Um, and so uh, there's certainly different motivational factors for each of these generations. Uh, you know, when a generation X, uh, we are the Xers uh, with Marissa and we're very um, motivated by uh, following a certain goal that we're given. And sometimes we're very independent in accomplishing this, um, while certain other uh, generations want to work more co cooperatively. They want to uh, converse and discuss and digest and reflect and, and just uh, decide how to approach this together as a team. Um, and so a good leader, uh, a relatable one, would understand these types of differences and motivational practices for each one of these generations and be able to really kind of turn this uh, to their advantage to accomplish the common goal. Um, and you met, I think you mentioned major, majors in, in, a, in a classroom, I mean, in the workforce, right? Um, and if that's the case, in some situations, you might have to uh, apply more structure. Uh, like in the situation you mentioned, you know, somebody who's habitually late, uh, they need to follow that structure and you need to learn that it's a behavior or trait, depending on what else is going on in their life, uh, to understand how this really impacts the team uh, and, and a common goal to accomplish that by them being late. And I, I, I've been in that boat. I've, had longer commutes in my life that I don't ever want to repeat. Uh, I've gone an hour and a half to two hour commute to get to a workplace because of whatever choices I've made in my life. Um, and if I did not leave at one certain month, certain time, or if I ran into traffic conditions, I would would eventually arrive there late. Um, and so it's a 
it's a change that I needed to adapt to whether I decided to stay in this organization because uh, my lateness I was impacting the goal of the organization or whether I wanted to switch where I was living or maybe leave even earlier than the, the timeline. Uh, but it's a, a good relatable leader will broadcast the need for that individual to be able to under, ascertain that their behavior and the lack of uh, contribution impacts the team to accomplish that goal. And you mentioned earlier, um, it's difficult in organizations because organizations um, are formed uh, to have under certain mission and certain vision and certain objectives. And, and they're expecting that the individuals they hire to, uh, to contribute for that organization to meet that strategic goal and strategic objective, because otherwise they will fail in that global marketplace with other competitors, et cetera, whatever else is going on in, in that particular area that they're operating in. Um, but, uh, and I like to give that example always, that inverted pyramid is we as leaders, we are at the bottom, we carry the weight. Uh, and we are shel uh, shouldering uh, the difficulties, the complexities that individuals have to deal with um, in order to allow these individuals to uh, flower through with their competencies and skills to accomplish these goals. So we need to remove these impediments for them. Uh, we need to ensure that there's no conflict. We need to uh, make sure that they have the appropriate workplace and the setting and the technology. And uh, uh, they're not burdened by, um, I, I had a, a boss that I um, quite often converse with Marissa about. Um, and, and that individual was a bean counter, right? He, he would have somebody uh, at the front door. And if you don't enter at eight o'clock, you're written up. And if you leave earlier than five o'clock, you're written up. Um, and uh, how do you really exist in this environment? We as technologists specifically, um, we're not defined by this eight to five or nine to five work, workplace. I mean, we, we may come in a little bit later, maybe we come in at nine or 9.30, but we stay until eight o'clock at night or nine o'clock because we're doing deployments and doing different types of things for the systems that you cannot do during live environment when people are at work. Uh, but that was never recognized. And you have an individual like this who doesn't recognize this, uh, what do you do? I mean, do you educate them? Do you try to stick to their um, uh, stringent requirement? Do you start a revolution? I mean, or just... <laughs> <laughs> there are different ways that you can, you can approach this. Uh, and what we talk about is, um, you know, leadership is not hierarchical. So uh, just because this individual um, uh, craves control, and that's how they uh, assume that leaders are supposed to act in your organization to to control this time of the individuals coming in or leaving, um, doesn't mean that they were effective leaders. As a matter of fact, they were not relatable. Uh, they were certainly not authentic because I've seen them come in late um, and leave early. Um, so, you know, we come back to that whole idea of, of the, are the really mentors to us or are the more of a, uh, speaking, uh, saying one thing, do, do as I say, but don't do as I do as, as they say. So. Uh, yeah, so this is why I, I was, it kind of resonated with me when you mentioned that how do you deal with um, majors in the workforces? Sometimes structure is good, uh, but you get these different types of generations that you need to deal with. And some generations may really not respect structure. I mean, Generation Y now, we're learning that they, they have a, a completely different, actually, I'm sorry, Ger Generation Z approach to how they, they uh, consider work, the workplace and, and the timelines and and uh, what's important to them as opposed to some um, earlier generations. The generational gaps, just something interesting to see. 
because you have the really young, the Generation Z people, completely different if you have any boomers left in your industry. Like, I don't even think the two can have a conversation where they understand what the other one's saying. I've had that happen. And like, what? <laughs> I just don't see it. And then you have the two generations in the middle that are still very separated. The X and the Y are very separated. You know, that 10 to 20 year difference really just shows and i mean it makes it very difficult if you're not willing to step outside of your comfort zone you're not able to understand that everybody's motivated by different factors and that kind of raised a question i wanted to ask you know that you've probably heard it people come for the um, for the compensation package but they stay for the culture so what are some of the main cultural issues that you guys are seeing right now in the industry or any of the, any industry at that fact not just project management but every leadership aspect take that one in your organization now um so i'm using all these filler words um and so while i'm thinking <laughs> one challenge that i actually have seen now is there's a woman who owns a company and she is struggling with well, part of our book talks about leadership development and recognizing emerging leaders. And so she's struggling with identifying emerging leaders for, I think it's Gen Z, so what's the next one, Alpha? Um, so she's struggling with, with identifying this because of the culture of her organization that's always been very um, fluid and agile to adapt to the different, it's in construction, so um, to adapt to the different um, building code requirements, and getting bids for projects, finding inspections, uh, following government regulations, things like that. And so now she has this whole new generation coming up in the workforce that she's getting ready to promote, give more responsibility to, put them out, gather more bids, get more clientele. And it, it's really difficult to identify those ones that actually have the acumen and want to be leaders and want to step up and and learn and take responsibility versus them just wanting to like take it as experience before they move on to the next one. And so her organizational culture, the challenge she's having is that it's shifting into a close knit longevity. Let's do some team building. We're all going to go bowling and, you know, spend some time getting to know each other to no, they want, you know, their separate time. Their work is not their family. Their work is just a means, a stepping stone to get, to a place, and she said that reminds her of when she first entered the workforce for those, and I, I don't know that they're the baby boomers now, but for the older generation who were looking to retire, um, that's how they were. This was their stepping stone. They've been in that position for so many years and they've earned their retirement and they weren't um, flexible. They didn't want to mentor new people into the roles. And so I think what that is an organizational challenge that I'm seeing now is, is when the organizational culture doesn't match the new talent coming in. And so the culture of the organization either has to shift or they can't identify emerging leaders in their organization. So where do they go for it? Um, they're going outside and then the people that are obviously already in there that think they should have been promoted get disturbed by the fact that they're not high, um, promoting from within. But if those people that are within aren't what the leadership is looking for. Also, um, another one is a, the big, corporations. Um, I have someone that just left a big corporation because she felt like the people that they were promoting weren't 
promoting the culture of the organization of what she was hired into. So I'm not exactly sure how that happened and I would love to delve deeper into that for maybe another book. But when you hire, when you promote from within and the culture that you're hired in suddenly changes because those people who are promoted into other positions change the actual atmosphere of the team, then that's a, a significant challenge for people that love that company and want to be there and are very loyal and just enjoy their work. Like they enjoy the job they're doing and suddenly they promoted from within, someone's promoted from within and there's a shift and that culture changes. It's no longer what they thought it was. And that, that's always a fun one. I've had that at a couple different organizations I work for, you know, oh, this guy is the guy that hired you, you really like him or you know, lady either way. And then they get promoted out, they promote from within somebody else. You're like, well, everything just completely shifted. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's unsettling because you're like, okay, and I mean, I can adapt. We can try to figure this out, but it's going from this is what I was told about. I was hired. This is why I want to work for this company. And now it's something completely different. Yep, because everyone has different motivations when they get there. It's like, oh, now I'm the person and this is how I'm going to do it. And suddenly, like everything that you thought you were doing and enjoyed doing is taken away from you. So. Everybody wants to leave their mark. That's something I figured out too. And I mean, I, I'm guilty of it. We all are as a leader. You want to make sure that something you do helps somebody or, you know, it's lasting with them. But sometimes they, leaders don't come in with the right mindset of how to do that. One of the best things I got told was, you know, basically, don't change anything unless it's on fire for like the month you're in a leadership job. If it's not a major problem, learn why it's there, understand what it is. And then when you start to make changes, get the people involved. Make sure that those that you're leading understand why are we changing it? How can we make this better? Incorporate them in the decision making. Because I know I've had bosses, and you guys may have as well, as soon as they come take over, this is the new policy. This is how life is going to be, like day one. And you're like, I didn't know it was that bad to begin with. <laughs> That's a great book title, Leave Your Mark. I'm going to remember that and credit you. <laughs> or if you would ever like to write a book called Leave Your Mark, you could talk about your podcast and, you know. That could be the next one. I'm working on day one leadership right now. So we'll see how that one turns out. And then you could develop a class around it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what my one brother-in-law keeps telling me. He's like, you're missing an opportunity to do classes and stuff. Like, if only, whenever I find the time, I know that's everyone's excuse. And the, it's not that if you have the time, it's what your priorities. But my poor little ones are my biggest priorities. So yeah, yeah. Trying to manage it all. I know we get asked to do like um, leadership workshops. Like somebody was like, oh, do you do a training? We're a medical facility. We'd love to have you come in because doctors need to have, you know, learn how to cultivate their relatability. Our patients are very diverse here. And I'm like, we don't have time. And like, you have time. You just don't, you know, we see you, you go for like a run or something. You have time. And it's like, <laughs> you know, to develop the actual training of it. It's the, I understand what you mean when you say you need time. <laughs> Self-care is not time. That's what, if I'm doing something I need 10 minutes for myself for, that's not time. That's literally booked in. That's to be. So Simon, do you have any other thoughts on the industry trends? I think um, what we're going to continue to see now with uh, the situation with the interest rates that we have this steep increase in interest rates and then suddenly, um, you know, we see the federal government freezing this. This is going to impact uh, organizations. I mean, they're going to have to do, uh, we're starting to see layoffs. And I've seen that uh, cycle through the, um, to the economic uh, uh, methodology, if you wish, the life cycle of, of organizations over, I don't know, over the past 25, 30 years, repeat itself. So 
what happens in this situation is we're going to start to see more organizations trying to do more with less resources. So we'll see more responsibilities on individuals, which is going to put pressure on them because they will lay off people in order to be able to you know, accomplish certain strategic objectives under the conditions, the economic conditions where you do not have enough resources. Um, because of the fact that uh, now it's going to be more expensive to take to get money in order to to do certain things uh, because of these rates that are high. Um, so as a result, uh, cultures are, are going to shift. Organizations are going to put more pressure, uh, and especially in the project management field. We'll, we'll start seeing that um, uh, there's going to be resource constraint projects, time constraint projects in order to uh, compete a little bit more. Uh, with uh, organizations in the marketplace under you know pricing or depending on the strategies that they've adopted, that's going to cause the culture of the organization to shift. Where there's going to be more pressure on individuals to um, uh, potentially do things faster, uh, maybe work with new uh, personalities that they've not worked in the past. Uh, you know, there may be some more job rotations and things like that occurring, so there might be a little bit more. Um, pressure to adapt uh, and get out of their comfort zones. And we are going to see those changes transpire in organizations. And we're gonna see a lot of individuals coming back to schools and they're gonna to try to re-skill themselves or upskill themselves in order to be able to integrate better or potentially say, look, I can't deal with this organization anymore. I gotta to move to a different one, but to do that, I need to have these new skills uh, or that new education. So. Um, this is what I expect to see in the trends over the next couple of three years uh, until rates stabilize and then we start seeing this whole, uh, you know, organizations rehiring individuals and, and starting to grow this whole idea of uh, doing things creatively as opposed to uh, under resource uh, constraints. So it will be an interesting uh, time the way we live in right now to see these things and, and applying these relatable leadership um, approach to becoming a better leader in your organization under these conditions is, is critical. Um, so that's why I wanted to say in the conclusion. So some questions I always like to bring up near the end of the episode. So if you've listened to any, you may have a heads up, but hopefully you didn't actually, because that way I can hit you with some surprise ones. So easy one first, what do you guys want to do in the next two years? Oh God, this is gonna sound funny. Um, we've got this, uh, well, we, we are running the Chicago Marathon, which is a world marathon, one of our first world marathons in October. Both of us are running, Marissa was accepted, uh, and I'm actually uh, fundraising for it. So this is our goals, preparing for it. We are, we are very big on um, um, conditioning ourselves and accomplishing certain goals. We, we've got another marathon coming up in Miami. <laughs> so, so you ask us what we want to do. This, these are the, the things that are just uh, in our immediate view. But uh, we are working on quite a few uh, uh, papers and uh, uh, quite frequently, I would say every maybe three or four months, we publish a new uh, paper on different types of topics, uh, especially related to project management and leadership. So we'll. We talk about strategic project management. We talk about uh, scope uh, creep and the impact on projects in our recent publications that are um, we did just this past year. Um, so that's another thing that we're pursuing is uh, expanding our uh, 
portfolio of publications uh, on lessons. Um, and, uh, you know, we also have uh, a few uh, ideas about traveling overseas and, and kind of embracing some new cultures. And we'll see how that's going to figure out over the next uh, uh, one or two years to uh, kind of broaden our respect and, and appreciation and understanding of, of different cultures because we we get to work with different cultures in our uh, consulting business and uh, that will only help us become better more culturally agile <laughs> so that's what i see as is running working and publishing and teaching <laughs> oh well, that's good to know <laughs> <laughs> no i mean coming up i do want to mention since we have the opportunity to and i know it'll be passed by the time i see this but we are running for um home base which is a foundation for veteran family care and i jason cooper was part of my leadership collier class and he's the one that introduced me to the foundation so a lot of what we're doing with our marathon running is to raise awareness for charities um simon's always been very philanthropic with with where to give back and how to give back to the community and i think um like he mentioned for Chicago, it's he he chose Team Paws because it's a no-kill animal foundation. And for us, we're very big on like mental health, veteran support, families. Um, yeah, my father was in the Air Force and he passed away when I was very, very young. And if they had, if we had known about Home Base or they had had that organization, then um, it's through Mass General. It was just, it's very, it was just very touching for me to read about it and see all the families that they're helping and the support that they are giving to to veterans and families. So um, that's one thing is running to create awareness. Um, we're very big into social responsibility. And then I don't know if it's a secret because he didn't mention it or not, but our next big like leadership project management project is looking at how project managers shift into the project development, product development phase. Because a lot of times like now, especially with like, um, well, just, AI. Oh, and that was the other thing is um, researching. So in the next two years, we're really looking at researching like the different types of workspaces, like not like virtual, but like I was like, what would it be cool if we all just like got to wherever we were and we all just put on our our little goggles or whatever. And we were in like the metaverse office space. So it's like we were all in an office, but we're not instead of just work from home. Um, but yeah, basically shifting from being a project manager into a product owner, because that's a lot of what um, we're seeing with software and actually in the marketing and publicity space on the publishing side we're seeing that too so so, yeah, so that's a good point product owner look into it if you haven't looked into it yet it's something you may want to pursue if you're in this industry or i guess any industry at that point <laughs> so what are some of the places you guys want to travel to so you want to take them <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> We're going to explore uh, Western Europe, so that would include France and Spain and uh, uh, potentially uh, maybe uh, portions of Scandinavia like Norway and uh, Iceland was on the table, but uh, now with the uh, volcano that erupted, we'll probably skip Iceland. So uh, Western Europe first, and then maybe uh, I would love to run Japan uh, in a Tokyo Marathon, so we'll probably go to um, Japan at some point, maybe in the next, I would say, two years or three years. and just explore a little bit uh, Southeast Asia, Japan, uh, maybe uh, Marissa's country of origin in South Korea. So, you know, that's on the table as well. Just anywhere, yeah, anywhere we can go. 
Yes, I, I was stationed in Japan for a year and a half. Wonderful place. Lots of awesome things to do. You've never seen so many people before in your life. We lived like 30 minutes outside of Tokyo. And I didn't realize how large it was until you got there. It's like 50 million people in the metro area. So, I mean, people talk about New York City being big. And I've been to New York. I've been to other large places. Tokyo is a totally different ball. Where do you recommend we go? So in Japan, my favorite place, even though I despise cold weather, is Sapporo, which is on the northern island of Hokkaido. And it is beautiful. But it's also a very, it was comfortable for me because it's an Americanized city. It was built up by the U.S. after the Second World War. So it's the normal American block style city where Tokyo is utter chaos. It's like seven or eight roads stacked on top of each other in some places. And there's like, you're on a two-way street, then it becomes a one-way street going the opposite direction. And so Tokyo's nuts. Sapporo went there in the wintertime during Christmas. Beautiful display. Has a nice little downtown market, but it's also all enclosed. So you don't even have to be outside to see a lot of it. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so I really love Sapporo. Tokyo is awesome. And then you have Yokohama, which is like right across Tokyo Bay. It's a beautiful place as well. Just, the funny thing is, if you read into Japanese history, I didn't realize it until I went there how much impact the U.S. has actually had and how much of a presence the U.S. has had in Japan basically from the mid-1800s on. Wow. So it's, it's very interesting, the two cultural connections, and you realize they were in a major conflict with each other. It's kind of surprising because how connected they were beforehand and how connected they were afterwards. I wrote them down. Unfortunately, I didn't make Korea. It was on my list of places to go, but I've not gone. I'd love to go at some point. I've heard nothing but awesome things about South Korea. But I didn't get to see a whole lot of other Asia places except for Guam, and Guam is very tiny. <laughs> question. No, no, certainly. We'll definitely take your advice and would I would love to see those places. Yeah. So the last question I get is kind of a hard one for a lot of people. It's one that makes one that makes you stop and think. So if you didn't get any prep work, you feel free to take a pause and try to think of what you want to say. But who wants to go first? Depends what the question is. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go. All go right, ahead. So I'll go. <laughs> All right, give it some risks. So there's a lot of pivotal times in people's lives, but I try to pick one that's very similar for most of us, going in from either junior high to high school, middle school to high school, whatever you want to call it there. If you could talk to your 14-year-old self, what would you say? Oh, <laughs> I would tell my 14-year-old self that I am the CEO of my life. Back then, um, I did a lot of stuff because I thought, like, that's what I needed to do to fit in. I was, um, well, from the book, I'm I did mention that like I grew up in a white Catholic family in New England. And so I did, you know, cheerleading and gymnastics and I took piano lessons and, you know, made sure that I had all the latest fashion. And then sometime like later in life, I did this minimalist thing where I did the 40 hanger project. So I took everything out of my closet, put 40 hangers up and I just hung up 40 items. And then that was it. I got rid of everything else. And then the next year I was like, I'm not going to buy anything designer this year. I'm just going to use the designer stuff I have. And, so I would tell my 14 year old self that like, yeah, the, these experiences that you're doing now, like the gymnastics, the cheerleading and, you know, dance and stuff is fun, but it shouldn't let it define you and that you are the CEO of your life. And so you should do more of what you love versus more of what you think everyone else loves for you to do. That's awesome. There's actually awesome. like a book. It's called My Dear Teen, teen Self. So like we <laughs> always do like these exercises where we're like, what, you know, dear teen self, what would you what would you want to do? I love that question. That was so great. 
Well, you don't have the answer to the test if you're ready for it. Jeez, I got to come up with a harder one for you. <laughs> so, Simon, what's your answer? Uh, I would say that, um, yeah, I mean, life is, uh, that's what Emerson said, a series of lessons. So, you know, we got to leave it to understand it. So, um, you know, you're going to make mistakes, learn from those mistakes, move forward, don't beat yourself up about this, accumulate these lessons, and then, uh, you know, learn more languages, number one, uh, while you're young, because it's easier, and then, um, you know, pursue your passions. That's very important, uh, because if, if we get um, kind of diverted into following other people's expectations for how your life is supposed to develop, um, eventually you're going to waste quite a bit of time in order to make a, a curve and then settle into exactly what you do. And a lot of the individuals that are now retired, and if you ask them, well, what is your recommendation? Be like, be like we talked about this, be authentic and do the things that really matter to you uh, as opposed to following what somebody else thinks you're supposed to be doing. Uh, that is going to maximize your you know, happiness or joy, if you wish, with, with your existence as opposed to um, trying to fit in uh, and and being un under unnatural conditions or not authentic, uh, because that creates this whole tension and obviously physical ailments, if you wish. You know, if uh, uh, individuals are wondering sometimes why am I so sick or whatever, it's because you're not being authentic. I mean, if if you're being who you are, if you're following your own uh, path that you feel passionate about, um, quite a bit of that conflict and tension and negative energy and um, self uh, uh, betterment, if you wish, or whatever you, you call yourself that you cannot fit into certain organizations for whatever reason, it's because you don't follow your own path. Um, so I, I would talk to myself about this and potentially, um, hopefully I'll listen because <laughs> you never know. I mean, you can tell yourself that, you know, and, and, and then be like, no, nah, I'm just going to do my own thing. And then I'll find out if that what you're saying is real. And uh, I don't know if I've ever had that conversation with an adult at the time, I'm sure I have, maybe with a grandparent or maybe my father. I, I, I just don't recall because obviously I, I did not follow what I'm talking to myself about now um, and learn these lessons the hard way. So that's what I would do. I think that, that's awesome perspective as well. And you know, that what you hinted on right there at the end, you try to instill that wisdom in others, especially people that are younger than you, and they just don't listen. I've noticed how my kids want. They want to try this, and they'll be like, no, no. And then it turns out, well, yeah, I probably should have tried <laughs> But it's, it's the trial and error, and you know, it's it's your life. you got to figure out what fits best for you. And I, you brought up another great point. I don't know if I'd have listened to my own advice at 14. So just, you have no idea how that's going to go. As we get close to wrapping this up here, any closing thoughts that anyone you'd like to share? Um, I always like to ask people, like, what advice have you had from hosting podcasts that really stuck with you from someone else? Just to reiterate it to your listeners now, but also so that we can go away with it, because I, I always love to, like, learn stuff. I did a lot of listening to other people that I admired, how they managed themselves, how they would go about introducing the topics, what kind of questions were interesting. And I mean, you know, like the your 14-year-old self kind of question. One of my favorite is a sports podcast, but it's a guy who does a really great job. He's the Bengals uh, radio announcer. He asks a question when he interviews all the players. His final question is, well, 
who would you, if you got dinner with anybody, you know, dead, alive, from any point through history, who would it be and why? So, like, I really like that. That question's very deep. And it's not what you'd expect from this kind of program. You know, you're talking about plays and strategies and stuff like that, but all of a sudden, bam, it hits people with life questions at the end. Like, that's really good. And it actually gets you to connect with these people that you want to cheer for. And even if they're not maybe the most major player on the team, it makes you want to embrace that person because their story. So it makes them very relatable. So you try to pick up on what makes you the most comfortable. And I dislike talking about myself, so sorry. I'm not, I'll try not to do too much. But this is this podcast that I honestly been a dream of mine since before I'd done my master's program. Well, I just felt like that. People have interesting stories. I'd like to tell people stories and be able to incorporate that, give it to people for advice, how it's going to make their life better, and just try to package it. So, I mean, if I give advice on podcasting, one, Find a good platform that's going to allow you to actually be able to easily edit and record. Audacity is fantastic for free audio. Canva is the best place I've found for video. And then understand to build your audience, you have to have a good message and be consistent. And that's one of the hardest parts when you're starting out. You have one to two listens an episode, you know, three listens, and you just want to give up. You can't. you got to keep pushing. The more people you get involved, and make it less about you. Keep the focus off of you unless I, it works for like Joe Rogan and other people like that. You can insert whatever name you want to, but they already had a major, huge platform. So people will come to their content purely just because of the major platform. But yeah, that'd be my biggest advice on podcasting. Well, congratulations on embarking on that uh, path. And I, I know it's difficult. I mean, we we love watching YouTube videos. We learn quite a bit from from watching and listening. And what I think what you what I believe you're doing is is excellent in educating, um, you know, your your listeners and viewers as well with these different perspectives. Um, and it's it's important. It's and do talk about yourself, obviously, because you are an expert, and uh, you know. You have quite a few lessons, and I do encourage, that's what I do with, with my students, as you know, is I ask you to talk as much as you can about your experiences, because this is really how we build these kind of mental frameworks. Uh, and we watch you um, on TV at night, Marissa and I. Um, we watch these different types of uh, YouTube uh, lessons and things that people share, and vicariously, we live through that, and then we are learning new things. So definitely talk about yourself. Do not be shy about that. <laughs> Appreciate that. This has been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed talking about you. If you guys have not gone out and purchased it yet, there is no box. Go out there, check it out. It is available on Audible. That's where I listen to it. You can also get a nice hard copy off of Amazon or probably any bookstore at this point. So just stop by your favorite venue, pick it up, and definitely enjoy the book. Thank you so much for having us. Oh, absolutely. Is there anywhere they can follow you at? on Instagram on There Is No Box and then Simon has LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to Constructive Curiosity. Visit ConstructiveCuriosity.com to learn more about our mental performance training, career coaching, and business management consulting services. Constructive Curiosity has the insight to get it right. Thank you for listening and keep being the best version of yourself.